0: We're going to dive right on in. We've been in the book of Ephesians all summer long, and today we are uh, making a big transition into the second half. Paul is going to get us into it here in Ephesians 4 in just a little bit by, by reminding us and by inviting us and urging us to do something related to the call of God. Now, I bet for many of you, um, you had a call that changed some things for you in your life. Maybe that was a phone call. Um, for some, maybe uh, maybe ladies, he called like you know, he got your number, then he actually called. Now I, does anybody call anymore? I still like phone calls, but I know everybody texts, but uh, you got a phone call and it changed things and it changed the trajectory of your life. Maybe it was a call letting you know you got into the program or you got the job. And it completely shifted things for you. Maybe it was a little more serious thing and you picked up a phone call and the tone of the voice of the loved one on the other end uh, let you know that, that things had just changed dramatically in your life. Maybe it was an opportunity that opened up before you. I remember getting a phone call in the fall of 2012 that changed the trajectory of my life and our family's life. We had... Uh, You know, been praying about church planning and wrote a letter to uh, the owner of this little event center and uh, got a phone call. We had asked, you know, hey, we're thinking about this church plant thing. We want to use it on a Saturday night and for a discount because we don't have any money. And (laughs) it was kind of a long shot because in the event business, like Saturday nights, the only night you make money. Uh, And so we're like, can we use your event center? And a couple weeks later, uh, I get a phone call. phone rings out of the blue, and it's this older lady, and she's the owner of the whole shopping center next door there. And she says, you know, my father was a minister, and I kind of have a place in my heart for this kind of thing. Let's give it a shot. And a few months later, we were starting Life Community. And as they say, the rest is history. Our family, the life of our family, shifted immediately. You know, a, a call can bring a real sense of direction and purpose to your life. Some of you know that. You were you know, called into something, or you 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 got invited into something. Maybe for some of you, you remember a season where it was school, and or you were working hard, and maybe you were eating ramen, but you were working, working your way through through school. And if you look back, that was one of the best seasons of your life. And the reason was because you had such a sense of purpose and direction and 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 call. Other of you, maybe like it was, you were working eighty-hour weeks on your startup. And it was good because you had a sense of direction and purpose and call. Now, for some, you remember days like this, but, but this interesting thing happens as we tend to get a little bit older. Some, it's fond memories, but it's 20 years ago. And for some, you're in the room and, and adulting <laughs> like life. It kind of beat it out of you. And you just sort of feel aimless. You know, there's a tendency. Have you noticed when you work really hard and then you get the things that you wanted? um, They don't always bring you what you thought they would. And some of you, you charged hard. You had a sense of calling. You achieved a dream or something. And then you just found yourself in this place of almost just being aimless. You're on this cycle of sort of rinse and repeat, living for the weekend, living for the upgrade living for the vacation, and you've lost a sense of purpose. You've lost a sense of call. You know, Jesus was always calling people who lacked purpose and direction into something that was much bigger than themselves. If you read through the Gospels, they're just completely full of invitational language. Jesus, he invites people um, just to come and see. Come and see, he says. It's an invitation. He says, follow me. To some guys, he goes, follow me. You've been fishing for fish. I got a little bigger fishing pond for you. Come follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. He calls out anyone who's thirsty. Do you feel thirsty? Like something's missing? Anyone who's thirsty, come to me and find living water. Anyone who's hungry, come and eat. It's a call to something bigger. It's not just a call that he offered to an easy life, though. He also says, come. Here's an invitation. Pick up your cross and follow me. There's sacrifice involved. It's going to change your life. It's going to affect your direction. And today we're launching into the second half of the book of Ephesians. And this is a major turning point in the in the book. Because up till now, we really haven't been given any instructions. It's been just all this amazing teaching on what our incredible, awesome God has done for us. But today, Paul is going to, to tie this into our personal calling. And what we're going to see is an invitation to a whole new way of living and an invitation into a purpose that's much bigger than so many are living for. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to dive right in, in verse 1. And we're not going to read the whole passage today ahead of time. We're just going to kind of work our way through it. And if you've been tracking with us this whole series, I'm in a different version today. Um, because it was a little um, more accurate when it came to the Greek, um, and I think it communicates the heart of call. So we're in the ESV today for this passage. Um, so here's how it goes. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So Paul says, I, Paul, I'm in prison jail, that's how serious I have been about walking out the call of God on my life. He, he, he kind of uses that as a like, hey, uh, I'm not bragging here, but I just want to remind you. So you take this seriously. This is how serious I am about this. I'm writing this from jail. And it isn't the first time I've been in jail for Jesus. So take this seriously, he says. And, and in the strongest language he can, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Therefore, why does he say therefore? What do we teach you? Anytime you see a therefore, ask, what is it? Very good, you remembered. Well, it's therefore, when he says, I therefore, it's there because the next three chapters are going to be all about these relational instructions for how we do life together in church and in our families and Character instructions for followers of Jesus. But here's the important part. It's therefore because of the first three chapters. And so here's what I encourage you. If you missed the beginning of the series, you can either go catch up on our podcast or YouTube channel, or you can just go read the first three chapters of Ephesians. But like Paul says, I urge you to do that because it's really important. Because everything that's going to follow is a response to what Paul's already written about. When he reminds us that it was him who called us from before the foundation of the world, that he had you in his heart and his mind, that you've been chosen by him, that you are so very loved, that you've been saved by grace through faith, not of works, you, you got nothing to boast about, it was all him, that you were dead in your trespasses and sin, sins and he brought you to life, he reached down. He pulled you out of the water. He loved you. And what did we see last week? And last, um, Jason and, and Winston walked us through the chapter three. And last week, what we saw was this um, incredible ending of that section where he says, "I just I pray that you would understand that it would sink in, not just." something you know in your head, but you would get it in your heart how wide and how deep and how broad is the love of God that you would know that love that surpasses your head knowledge, that it would sink in. Why? Because the walk worthy of your calling, you got to understand that it was all him, that he did it for you, that it was his grace, unmerited favor, that he loves you. That, that there's never been a time, that there's nothing you can go out and do that will make him love you more than he loves you right now. And see, this is really important that you get this. And that's why I said go back and read the first three chapters if you're just joining us. Because if you don't understand that, as we dive into the character stuff, as we dive into the, hey, here's how you walk stuff, what you're going to do is you're going to go, okay, I got my checklist, and I'm going to go out and try really hard to do this, and you're going to fail. And then you're going to be in this rinse and and repeat cycle of failure, shame, try harder. and, And where so many people end up is in this place of just walking away from it, saying, I can't do it. Or you or you choose to live as a shell of who God actually created you to be and what he actually created you to do. See, everything that comes next, it comes out of a grateful response to what he's done for you. The overwhelming... Um, truth in your heart coming alive to you that you are deeply loved and forgiven. It's his grace that saved you. And because of that now, your desire is to live a life worthy of this incredible calling to which you've been called. So he says, live worthy of the call. Walk worthy. I love it. It's it's walk this is one of the reasons I chose ESB, because it's literally walk. We're going to see walk four times over um, the rest of this book. He's going to tell us to walk today in unity, in, in unity and purpose. He's going to say walk in impurity. A little later, we're going to see him say walk in harmony in our relationships. And when it comes to the spiritual realm, to walk in victory. Walk. I love the image of walk. It's a journey, isn't it? It starts when you trust Jesus, when you respond to the call, and it ends when you graduate into his presence, when either he comes back or you meet him first. It's a journey, and you never arrive. You never arrive. It's about movement. And so he says, I want you to walk, walk in a manner that's worthy of this amazing calling. And he puts this twice in there, the calling to which you've been called. Calling to which you've been called. This is the root word here of calling is this little Greek word uh, called kaleo. It it means to be called as we would understand to receive a call or be summoned or be invited. Even to be named. If you remember, last week we talked about being named, having purpose, finding meaning and community and belonging. Belonging. In him, the apostle Paul would use this word over 29 times in his letters in the New Testament, and it always almost always carries this sense of divine purpose like God has a purpose for you. It's a call that comes from God, it's a call to service, it's a call to dedication, it's a call to sacrifice not because of anything you've done, but because He loved you and it's your, your response. In uh, Timothy, the book of 2 Timothy, Paul writes about this call. He says this, he, God, he saved us, and he called us to a holy life. That means a set-apart life, a special life set apart for him. Not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. That grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. He says, because of this, it's His grace working in us. And so when you see this word calling as we dive into the second half of Ephesians, don't think of just like some sort of special class of people that, you know, you know they're, they're one of the prophets in the Old Testament or Moses who's called to lead. No, this is a call that's for every believer, this is a call to follow Jesus. This is the invitation and the call to you and to I. If You've been called to follow him. It's a call to believe, to trust in Jesus, the risen Lord. To trust him. To give him complete and undivided allegiance for the rest of our lives. It's a call to loyalty to him. To making him the highest priority. The highest thing in your life. Walk worthy of the calling, this amazing calling to which you've been called. Now, how do you do that? He goes on, and he dives in, and it starts with character. It's going to start with character. It's going to start with things that he can only work in your heart. He says this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So he starts out, he says, here's how this works itself out. Here's here's what it means. It's a heart thing. It's a character thing. It's a thing that he works in your life, and it begins with humility. And see, we have kind of a a fallen picture of humility, I think, in our culture, where we we see it as, as lowly. Humility is really an awareness that all we are and all we have comes from God. It's the opposite of pride, the original sin that drew the heart of the evil one away. It's it's understanding who we are in relationship to God. It's a powerful thing, humility. It's understanding our place that he is God and we're not that we're the creature we're the creature he's the creator we're the creature that we exist for him not vice versa in fact humility is displayed in Jesus of course but Paul describes it this way in Philippians 2 he said here's here's humility i want you to have the same attitude that was in Christ Jesus who listen up he existed you know in the very presence of God God himself God in from all eternity, and yet he did not regard that um, station or equality with God as something to be grasped, yet he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, of a servant. He comes to earth as a human, he, being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a criminal's execution stake, a cross. And he did that for you and me, the great God of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the Son comes to earth, takes on flesh, lives and dies for us. He says, This is your example. This is the example of humility. And it's powerful, it's not weak, it's powerful. In fact, uh, one of the early church fathers, Ignatius, said this, that it's humility, that through humility, the prince of this world, or the Satan, is brought to nothing. Like a heart that's truly operating in humility, a life that's operating humility, it's a powerful spiritual thing, and the devil doesn't have a foothold in your heart. Humility is powerful. So he says, in humility, in gentleness... And gentleness. Again, this is a word we don't use too much in our culture. But at one time, the uh, trait of being a gentleman was held up. It doesn't mean weakness again. You remember Jesus at one point, like anybody used to have the WWJD bracelet? What would Jesus do? You're like, what would Jesus do? Well, one of the things that Jesus did was he, uh, in this circumstance where these money changers were corrupting the temple, he, he purposely like braids a cord, a whip, and he drives them out and turns over the tables. WWJD. Now, uh, before you get any ideas, I don't think your, your holy anger is quite as holy as Jesus's, okay? We're going to see anger dealt with uh, in, in one of the verses here in, in the next week or two. <laughs> but he has so so it's not weakness see gentleness is this thing that's willing to meet others where they're at to power yourself down it says let the little children come to me the great god of the universe it's this ability to make other people feel comfortable did you notice how so many different people even like notorious sinners feel comfortable around jesus he's not harsh He's not judgmental. There's a gentleness about him. He respects others. Gentleness cares for others. It creates an environment where defenses go down. In fact, in Proverbs we see, this is a great one to teach your kids, that a gentle answer turns away wrath. Have you noticed that in an argument? How someone can just diffuse the whole situation with a gentle answer? With meeting someone halfway where they're at? He says, with patience, bearing with one another. One another. We see this term, bearing with one another. This is literally um, putting up. This is the Greek idea. Bearing with, we don't really use that in common language. This is putting up with one another in love. Now, how many of you know that there's some people in, in, you know, your general circle that you kind of need to put up with in love? How many of you know that person's you? Don't raise your hand because at certain times we all are that person that has to be put up with in love. See unity doesn't come from the fact that we all just come together and we're all easy to be around. Unity is pretty easy actually when you're just sitting side by side on rows with a good at least one chair in between you, you know? You could actually squeeze together a little bit. I don't think the people around you bite. I'm just giving you, you know. And these front rows, I don't spit very far. So you can come fill these up too. <laughs> now, but there's this idea, literally putting up with one another in love. And you see this term, one another, over again and over again, over 40 times in Paul's letters. You know, most of the commands in the New Testament are character carried out in the context of one another. And, and as wonderful as it is to gather in a, in a large crowd and worship him and, and uh, you know, uh, read and pour into the scriptures, man, most of the New Testament, the, the commands are carried out in the context of community. They're carried out in how you do life together in your home, as a family, how you interact with each other what most of it's about. And he says, I want you to bear with, literally put up with each other in love, agape. That's self-sacrificing love. It's the idea of, it's the idea that Jesus says when he says, greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for our friend. A new command, he, he, he says, I give you, love one another as I have loved you. How did I love you? Well, I'm about ready to go to the cross for you. As I have loved you, so love one another. And so this is a big idea here, as he says, literally, I want you to bear with one another in love, with patience. <laughs> a good illustration of this. Have you ever taken a walk with a three-year-old? I remember when one of my kids was three, and we'd go on a walk, and I'm kind of like, let's go walk and get somewhere, right? But a three-year-old, it's like, oh, a flower, you know? Oh, a bug. And they're like kind of like wandering all over. And you're just like, let's get somewhere. And this idea, with patience with each other, is ramping your speed down to go at the speed of another, powering down to meet someone else where they are at. Taking your strength and leveraging it on behalf of someone else. That's the idea behind this. In love. In love, and what what's the goal? To be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, when it comes to unity, I think unity is that one thing we t- we talk about. We know we're supposed to have in the body of Christ, the church. This is the rep- a metaphor Paul uses often. The church is a body; it's a living organism made up of many parts, and there's we're called. To be united. And and what he says here is the unity of the Spirit. It's not a natural thing. It's not we work really hard and and we all get along. It's this thing that that he does, but we're called to be eager to maintain it. I fear too many times we are not at all eager to maintain it. We are eager to point out differences, we are eager to nitpick, we are eager to gossip about others, and find fault. He says, I want you to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know, in Romans, he'll say, as far as it's dependent on you, live at peace with everyone. Like it, Do what you can do. Now we know at times you do everything you can do to create peace in a relationship and at some point it's on the other person and you've done everything you can do. But a good question is to ask is, is, have I done what I can do to maintain peace with others? So he starts with character and then he tells us why, why we do this. He says, "Why, why do we, seek why do we walk this way he says because there's a bigger picture then he dives back into some theology and we think this next couple of verses was actually like a a song maybe or a common phrase that they that they would know and here's how it goes there's one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. We have a hope, right? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The reason you're united is because you recognize you're part of something way bigger than yourself. You're part of the one united purpose of God from all eternity past. And you've been called into this thing. One body, the church, one spirit we all partake in, he says. You have a hope in common with each other, of eternity, with Jesus beyond anything you can imagine. One Lord we worship. One, one faith that we share, the faith and trust in Jesus. One baptism, and here I don't think he's talking about um, water baptism. He's talking about being baptized into the body of Christ. The thing that water baptism symbolizes, that we share in, one God. And he reminds us of the Shema, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. See, the only way we, we unite as followers of Jesus is when you have firmly focused in your mind the big picture and call of God. When you recognize this, the story isn't about you, it's never been about you. It's, the movie isn't, like, you're, you're not the star player in the movie all about your life that's all about you. Too often we live like that, and we begin to think of everyone else as sort of, you know, supporting actors in the story of our life. Before you know it, it's hard to put up with other people because they're just not nearly as focused on me as I am, Right? When we're all focused on the one who actually is the center, who the story is about, on what the plot actually is, and we understand we're the two-bit actor, and every once in a while, he like we get to you know be used in a really cool way in one of the scenes, but the movie's not about us. It's about him. It's about him. It's like uh, you remember Sam in Lord of the Rings. Frodo, I can't carry the ring, but I'll carry you. He's calling you to have a role, but the movie isn't about you. It's about the big purpose of God. And that brings unity, a sense of purpose and direction. We're one, but we're unique. And that's part of his beautiful plan. He goes on, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This language is very similar to Romans 12, where he says we have different gifts according to the grace given us. And then he goes on to list a bunch of different um, spiritual gifts that have been given, abilities. Um, Many of them seem very natural, but these are abilities from God to bless each other and to build up his body, the church. And you've been given an individual responsibility in his family. You are called. And then he goes on in these next couple verses, and he kind of takes a, uh, a bunny trail, <laughs> I think at least. I mean, it supports his point. But it's like, what? what are you saying, Paul? Here's what he goes on. He says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Um, that's a paraphrase, Paul's paraphrase of Psalm 68. And he, and he quotes this psalm that he knew by heart. And he goes on, and then in parentheses it says, In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he may fill all things. Now, Paul often does this. He goes off on a little bunny trail and gives us like, deep theology to make the main point, which is he's given gifts to humanity, to, to believers for the purpose of building up the church. It's kind of the main point. But as he does this, uh, you're like, man, that's an interesting little section here. And there's a couple of different ways to look at this theologically. And we have a saying around here. Um, that's we're lifelong learners, which means we, we don't think we ever get it completely figured out. And the other side of that is that smarter people than us have been arguing about these things for thousands of years. And so this is... There's a couple different viewpoints on this. One, um, anybody remember there's a, uh, one of the early creeds of the church was called the, the Apostles' Creed. And there's a little phrase in there where it says he descended into hell, which is a little bit tricky for us. We're like, what? Where'd that come from? That after he was crucified, dead, and buried? And it's actually a little confusing because the word in Greek is actually Hades or Hades and it means the underworld the realm of the dead. And there's another interesting scripture in 1 Peter chapter 3 where it talks about Jesus actually preaching to imprisoned disobedient spirits and the big idea behind it is he says I'm the victor. You thought the powers of evil you thought by crucifying me you were going to win. Uh uh-uh. uh. <laughs> You're still imprisoned. You I am the victor. I have all the authority. And there's this idea as it says that he ascended. There's this victory parade. He led forth a host of captives. Other people, other scholars think this is a really uh, poetic way of uh, basically saying that uh, he, in the incarnation, Jesus came from heaven, took on flesh, came to the earth. And then he ascended to the right hand of God. With all power and all authority, like Philippians says in Philippians two eight that he humbled himself because he humbled himself, and and beyond like the bigger like the, the things people argue about in the theology. I think this is true. This is the main point that Jesus rules. He reigns above all. That because he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. It says, for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's the the realm of the dead, they thought of it. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the heart of it. And so he makes this big statement about the authority of Jesus. And the idea here, what he's trying to get to, is he, he gives gifts through his Holy Spirit to his church. And so he goes on. He says, It's by grace that he actually gives gifts. And some of those gifts are actually people. Check this out. He says this, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, there's a lot of stuff packed in there. But as... as, as you study this, one of the big questions is, okay, are these gifts or are these offices? And as I was studying this, um, what's interesting is some of these things that are listed here that seems like positions or offices in his body in the church, of leadership in the church, they're also listed right in the same list as spiritual gifts in First Corinthians. And Paul seems to use them kind of interchangeably. And one of the scholars says, Here, here's the thing. You, we need a broader understanding of gifts. Here's the idea. To the church, actually, people are God's gifts. You are God's gift to the church. Now, some of you young, young men, you may, you know, you, your, your mind may have gone back to the old joke. Eh, God's gift to women, huh? No, no, no. Humility, go back. You're not God's gift in that way, okay? But the point is, he has made you unique. He has made you, he has given you purpose. He's given you a calling to follow him. But then within that, he's given you a unique purpose in his body, in the church. In the New Testament, a gift is really the heart of it. it's, It's the way that the Holy Spirit works through a person for the good of the community that each person is a gift to the church. And so he lists these different roles of leadership. And you have apostles, and there's kind of a, a broad meaning of apostles in the New Testament. You have the, I call them capital A, apostles, these are the ones that Jesus specifically chooses, the eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus. They're the ones given authority to bind and loose. They write a lot of the New Testament. Um, it's it's those who spread the teachings of Jesus and found the movement of Jesus. In fact, their very names are on the 12 foundations of the heavenly Jerusalem. So there's like the 12. There's the apostles. Now, I always wondered, you know when, the, when Judas... Um, obviously betrayed Jesus and they had to select a new apostle and the Holy Spirit led him to the, that one dude. I almost wonder if like Paul is going to like arm wrestle him for the name on the, one of the foundation stones. Cause I, Paul's probably more humble than me. Cause I would be like, you know, I wrote like almost half of the new Testament. Can I at least have an honorable mention, you know, at least like slash me on that on with that dude. Um, I, I don't know. That's just me making that up, but uh but the apostles, the 12. But then in other places in the New Testament, we see more the idea of apostles. It's a broad term. It can mean just like a messenger of the church or a key leader, maybe a church planter, um, a missionary to a new culture, or a leader over a network of churches. And so you have this kind of meaning in different lists in the New Testament that talk about others, like Andronicus as an apostle. And Junia, who's actually a woman, as an apostle. And Timothy and Titus and Barnabas as apostles. And so there's this kind of, that's kind of the heart of leadership. Then you have the prophets. And again, in the New Testament, you see this really, the idea being those with a prophetic gifting, the ability to discern and communicate things God is speaking into specific times and situations. And then you have evangelists. And, and this is interesting because we're all called to share the good news of Jesus, right? That's, that's something we're all, we're all um, encouraged to do. In fact, Timothy, Paul tells him, do the work of an evangelist. I don't get the sense that he thought that was his major spiritual gifting. But Paul says, do it. You've all been called to share. But man, I've hung out with some, some people that it's just like they're gifted in this profound way. And, and like they you know they'll walk over at a restaurant and share Jesus with some stranger. You're like, "How do you do that?" It's a spiritual gift God's given them and it draws many to Jesus. Pastors, and literally this is shepherds, teaching shepherds or teaching pastors. And that's those who shepherd or care for and teach the scriptures and provide leadership in the context of individual local churches. Different positions. Now, this isn't some hierarchy of these are the, the you know the important ones. What are these positions for? To lead. What is a leader? A servant. <laughs> See, we 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 have this wrong. When we do org charts and different things, the pyramid should be flipped over. Those with the most responsibility have the most role for what? For the benefit of all. That's how it works in the kingdom. Of God, and so here, what's the purpose of this? To equip, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, so that the body of Christ can be built up in Christ, through you, through your gifts, through you doing the work of the ministry. Equip the saints. Now, this may throw you for a loop, but uh, who are saints? Those who are called and set apart. Those who he's called to serve him, to follow him. So everybody point at yourself. Do it. I'll make you get up and do it with me. Just kidding. And say, saint. Saint. That's the heart in the New Testament. You're the ones who are called to do the work of the ministry. You know the role of the leadership and the church and those that our um, invocational ministry, kind of, this is our full time gig, is to do everything we can to serve you in such a way that you're equipped to do the work of the ministry, to love others, care for others, pray for others, serve others, serve the community, build each other up, encourage each other, speak life to each other, counsel, mentor each other. There's no such thing as a part-time Christian. I have a pet peeve, and that's the term full-time ministry. Because what it communicates is like, dude with the mic, that's full-time. Me, I'm part-time. It's like a weekend, you know, it's just like a volunteer slot on the weekend for me. No, if you're a a follower of Jesus, you are in full-time ministry. You know, it looks different in your context but you're called to full-time ministry. There are no part-time Christians to equip the saints for the work of service so that we can have unity of faith. You know where that comes from? It comes from as we all grow and walk this journey together and use what God has given us uniquely and individually in the context of one another to build each other up. That's that's how that happens. And he says, through this process, like we'll actually begin to know God, know Jesus, not just with a head knowledge, but but we'll know him. We'll know him. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children. What's wrong with children? Nothing when you're a child. <laughs> but if you're a 35-year-old asking five-year-old questions, there's a problem with that, right? so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. You know, part of why God has called us into this thing together, the whole one another thing is such a big deal, is because it's so easy to be deceived. And it's perhaps even easier to deceive ourselves. We need each other. Do you know that like all of your needs, Jesus could just supply. Like he could just drop, you know, he fed the 5,000. He, he could meet all your spiritual, emotional needs and needs. So he could just like download truth into your into your mind. And But you know, he chooses to work through people. It's the same thing with prayer. He chooses to use, to partner with the prayers of his people to accomplish things on this earth. He chooses to use the gifts within you to build each other up. You can't do it alone. You actually cannot become a mature Christian alone out on the mountaintop. I'm not saying there's not a place to go get away in solitude. That's that's great. But if that's your version of church church, Um, Trust me, I've seen over and over and over again you die on the vine because you were created for community. We weren't intended to do this alone. He goes on, he says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. You are one of the joints. That's the point. You're you're vital. You you don't recognize how, how vital a joint is till you break one. <laughs> Got a staff member still recovering at home right now. I did a couple of years ago, broke broken an ankle. Every part is important. Every joint to which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love so he says, I want you to, part of this whole one another thing is you're going to speak the truth in love. We are to be a people of truth and love. And the concept of love and grace are very similar. In the New Testament, Jesus came, John told us he was full of what? Grace and truth. You're to speak the truth in love. We live in a culture where we think our truth is just personal unto us. My truth, you hear that all the time. Truth is actually found in what the one who created the universe says is true. The one who created all reality says, this is how it works. That's truth. And as a believer, you're called to each other to speak the truth, but not in harshness. This is where the humility, the gentleness, the patience come, tr- truth in love. But you got to speak the truth. you got to be willing to say, hey, um, the way you're walking will not bring life into your life. Truth in love. With grace. With humility. He's going to go on in this, in this book in, 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 a little bit later, and he's going to talk about some things that are very countercultural for us, like sexuality and how, how followers of Jesus are to be different. And he's going to say this is actually truthful and loving, and it's for your flourishing and your joy and your freedom in life. And through this, we grow up into maturity. See, here's the truth. You've been called into something eternal, something wonderful, something much bigger than yourself walk worthy. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Here's what I want you to take away from this this week. However you can remind yourself, I just want you to, I couldn't write a better main point than the one that Paul put down. This, would you ponder this? As you think through your life, as you think through following Jesus, as you think through those things he was talking about, humility, how you doing on that? Patience, how are you doing with putting up with, in love, one another? Maybe in your family, in your extended family, in your workplace. How are you doing with that? He says this, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Would you take that? Would you just ponder that this week? Would you pray about that this week? Would you stand? So as we close, I want to give some of you an opportunity to respond. Perhaps um, you've never responded to the call of Jesus. For others, uh, man, you're in this place where you just feel so aimless. And you've lost your sense of purpose and calling in the bigger picture. And you're just living for the weekend. You're trying to fill that void in your life with a bunch of things, and it's not doing it for you. He is calling you back to refocus on this incredible calling to which you've been called. That life isn't about you. It's about him. And if you reorient your life to walk in a manner worthy of a calling that you've been called and to focus on him and put his kingdom first, you're going to start to once again experience that sense of joy and purpose and meaning in life. And I want to pray for you, if that's you. But as we bow our heads and close our eyes, let me just... Let me just give an invitation. If there's anyone in the room, Jesus is inviting you. He's calling you, come, follow me, trust in me. And you can express that in a simple prayer, something like this, Lord Jesus, I need you. I ask for your forgiveness, for your grace in life. I believe you are the son of God, that you died and rose again for me. I embrace what you did for me. As as a gift. And Lord, in grateful response, I want to live my life for you. Would you help me do that in every aspect of my life? And Lord, for my other friends, would you just reorient, refocus, recenter their lives right now on this big, eternal, unified purpose that they've been called into? And would that give meaning to the mundane day in and day out of life. Restore that sense of meaning and purpose and calling in their hearts and in their lives. We pray these things in your name, the name of Jesus. Amen.